This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Paul Fay. We've had him on the show before, uh, and he recently put a piece up. I've, I've came across it on social media, but you might have found it at where Peter is, wherepeteris.com, uh, that was so compelling that it was just something that we had to clear the calendar and have a conversation about. Paul blogs and podcasts over at popefrancisgeneration.com. He is the co-founder of Where Peter Is, which is a fantastic, beautiful, lovely website. I'm so thankful for the work that you all do. Paul, thanks for being here on the show. Thanks, Dio. So the piece that you recently wrote is called The Place Where You Stand is Holy Ground, Recognizing and Preventing Spiritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, one, it seems, sounds pretty academic. It's pretty clarified in what you're talking about. It just, the title has that real, uh, clear ring to it. And this is something that we don't often talk about. A couple of reasons. One of them is that I think we're all a little bit gun shy because of the, the sexual abuse crisis that happened back, uh, came to light in the, in the two thousands. And so anytime we hear the word abuse, we just kind of clench a little bit and hold our breath and see what's the next thing that's going to come out. And sometimes we look at these questions of spiritual abuse, and if they're not tied to other kinds of abuses of power, we tend to sweep it under the rug or just kind of power through it because this isn't, you know, this isn't bad in context to all the other things that we had come out in the news. Is it really worth dredging up all of this uh, uncomfortability for something that might just be personality conflicts? And you, you maintain that, yes, this is a very important thing for us to talk about as part of that we're as, as Catholics called to be ministers of reconciliation, uh, reconciling humanity to God and recognizing the dignity of the human person and helping us each recognize our own dignity and the dignity of those around us. And the only way to do that is for us to be integrated as people and to treat other people as subjects and not objects. So let's dive, let's dive right in. This is, it's a little bit nervous, even as we're starting this conversation, but what brought you to a place where you recognized this as an issue and as an issue that you specifically wanted to address in this piece? Yeah. Um, yeah. I liked your comment about how we're uncomfortable talking about abuse in the church. Um, I think because we're uncomfortable as people talking about abuse in general and the clerical sexual abuse ongoing scandal in the church mm -hmm. weighs so much in our consciousness. Uh, it is very difficult to see anything else as harmful. Um, I was just talking with uh, a priest today, actually, um, who shared, you know, who, who shared pretty vulnerably. He's like, you know, not too long ago, he says, just a few years ago, when I heard people talking about spiritual abuse, I kind of dismissed it as, you know, these the, these millennials using important words like abuse and, you know, thinking it meant something like your feelings were hurt. Right. right. Um, but then he shared how by listening to a lay woman 
who met him where he was at and explained things to him came to understand something differently um, and understand how serious spiritual abuse is. Uh, I came to understand it like instinctively, like knowing when things didn't feel right in the church, both as someone who has been ministered to where I'd walk away from a situation or walk away from a group and being like, I don't like what that was. Something about that Mm -hmm. wasn't right. Um, But even as a minister times when I would teach or I'd contribute to a Catholic culture in my parish or in whatever circles I was in, where there was something that didn't feel respectful. Um, I mean, I, I was doing what I was taught to do, what I saw others doing, and something didn't feel right. Um, but I never was able to put words to it. Now, about a year and a half ago, uh, the Lord called me to, um, to enter a, a master's program in mental health counseling, which is not an area I had really considered before. I've always seen myself as being a minister in the church. But he put a particular desire on my heart with that, which was to um, help Catholics heal from uh, the harm they've experienced in the church and by the church, and to help ministers and clerics in the church um, bring what's best from the counseling world into ministry to help them be less harmful, right? Mm-hmm. Um So with that desire in my heart, I started doing research and really dove into it this past summer. And the more I read, the more I was given words to describe experiences uh, that I had had before, Um, especially the research I did on abuse of conscience specifically, where I'm like, oh, that's what that is. Hmm. That's what that's like. Um, So it's been incredibly enlightening for me personally and understanding my own history. Um, but yeah, that's how, I mean, it was really led by the Lord. Uh, that's how I came into this. Yeah. Let's, before we get too in depth here, let's define what we're even talking about when we say spiritual abuse. What are, yeah. what's meant by that term? So, um, spiritual abuse is a type of, um, psychological abuse. Now, uh, in, in the research, it's clear that psychological abuse can be just as harmful to someone, just as traumatic to someone as physical abuse. Um, So it's a subcategory of psychological abuse. And the thing that makes spiritual abuse different or or, distinct from other types of psychological abuse is precisely the spiritual element. So it's the misuse of power in a spiritual or religious context um, in a way that violates someone's freedom. And then even more specific than a subtype of spiritual abuse is abuse of conscience, which is specifically a someone misusing their power to invade someone's conscience intentionally or unintentionally. Mm-hmm. In this piece, um, again, the piece is called The Place Where You Stand is Holy Ground, Recognizing and Preventing Spiritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. It's linked there at wherepeteris.com. Um, you talk about that there are some of the times that the people who are perpetrating spiritual abuse are not intending harm, that they, that they believe that the thing that they are doing is actually for the 
benefit of the person who is receiving that uh, unbalanced power structure. So with that being the case, and let's just say that there are priests or catechists or any number of people ministering in the church who have best intentions, how does this just keep from being a free-for-all going back to that question of, well, this is just a person using important words when they're when their uh, feelings are hurt. If it's not necessarily understood or intended, um, how does that play out in differentiating abuse from just a really weird relationship? Yeah. So I think, first of all, it's important to... Um, abuse is understood not by the intention of the abuser, but by the harm experienced by the person who was abused. Um, so the intention of, of, of the abuser or the culpability of the abuser is secondary. Um, so I think, at least in my understanding, the harm that's done is a way to distinguish this, how this is not simply someone feeling uncomfortable or someone's feelings being hurt, but rather uh, this spiritual abuse um, can do severe damage to someone. It can cause full-blown PTSD symptoms, so things like night terrors and disassociation and anxiety and uh, panic attacks, things like that. Um, but then the specific spiritual element of it is, and as a, as a lay minister, this is something that's extremely concerning for me, is that it can turn church and sacraments, places of healing and of, and of encounter with God, into places uh, where trauma is just, uh, where trauma happened, and then trauma keeps being triggered over and over again. Mm-hmm. And they become, these places of healing and grace now become places where s- people no longer feel safe. We talked about this a little bit last week um, and brought up this this passage out of Romans where Paul's talking to the Romans and saying, um, these are the things that you're supposed to be. And and when that is not the case, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And we see this whole rise of of the nuns or of we see ex-evangelicals or ex-Catholics who can point back and say, oh, I, I was that once. And let me tell you, it's not what you think it is. And they have this very visceral experience with religion that doesn't match up with what we understand it to be. And, and I think oftentimes there's a misunderstanding and we think, well, if we can just say the right words or show them the right, um, the, the, the right proofs of God or show them that they didn't really understand the faith, then maybe they'll come back. And I think that we often overlook the possibility or probability that that person experienced some level of trauma within their experience of the faith, which until that is processed through, faith is always going to be a thing that's looked at as dangerous. I I think you're absolutely right. And I would say, you know, this is very anecdotal. The people I know, especially in my generation, who are no longer practicing um, Catholics or practicing Christians, are no longer practicing precisely because of real harm, like actual harm they experienced in the church, either by ministers in the church, either by... Um, 
uh, their parents, again, sometimes maliciously, sometimes unintentionally, using using their religious beliefs in the home to try and control their children, um, but also in our church cultures. So I'm doing research now, um, this this fall semester, on purity culture within mm-hmm. the American church, both within Protestantism and within Catholicism. And there's a lot of spiritual abuse that happens, again, not often directly by ministers, but within a culture um, that makes that leaves people suspicious of their own desires and suspicious of their own conscience and therefore unable to like actually discern what's good and what's true. All they have is what is these objective laws being told to them. Let's stop right here on the purity culture because I grew up Protestant in the nineties evangelical. I mean, that's all there was, was this, you know, true love weights and, and, uh, which was this program, right? And certain pledges that you would make of how you were going to live out your life. And, sign and it, all seems, card. it all seems very aspirational. Like we're, you know, focusing on the good, the beautiful, and the true and pressing for it. But but the way that it was expressed was, <clears throat> was not the way that the church expresses it. And in your piece um, that, that there on where Peter is, you talk about one of the signs of spiritual abuse is— teaching things as definitive that the church doesn't teach. To take this back to to a really clear picture, God told Adam, uh, don't eat of the tree. And Adam told Eve, don't eat of the tree or even touch it, lest you truly die, right? There's that additive thing of, well, just because you can't be trusted to do what's right, let me add five steps on top of that to really keep, make sure that you don't cross the boundary. And that ends up being uh, a manipulation of power. Yeah. And as Jesus would say later of the Pharisees, of tying heavy burdens on people to prevent them from going through the door, but not going through the door yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I experienced this personally in, um, in specifically, so not within evangelical or Protestant culture, but within, uh, the, you know, the Catholic flavor of purity culture, um, where I grew up in NFP circles. My wife and I got married young. We, you know, we've learned and used three different methods of NFP. Um, but within all of that, mixed in with the very good teaching, were a lot of um, moral norms that mm-hmm. are not actually taught by the church, but that were imposed as if they were. And then... Um, as you know, as my wife and I, in the first several years, many years that we were married, had to come to terms with that and figure that out for ourselves. And it was extremely difficult. Like there were moments of, I don't believe that this is true, but it was like my conscience had been invaded by people who claimed to speak on behalf of God and on behalf of the church who said, well, no, this is true. So then there's like this internal conflict of not knowing which voice is actually the Lord's voice in my conscience Mm -hmm. and having to step back and be like, I trust in the Lord's goodness and I trust in his mercy. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to take a risk and say, I believe that this is true. And if I'm wrong, Lord, please correct me. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was a very difficult time um, and almost pushed me out of the faith at at moments. And can we just say that that prayer is a prayer that God will always answer, right? Uh, You know, Moving to the person who may be scrupulous and and has a lot of stress over, 
are the things that I am thinking right now things that are true because they're taught by the church, or are they things that are not true and I just assume that they are taught by the church? That prayer of, God, if I'm wrong, correct me, has a certain level of humility to it that God will always answer. And not just humility, but trust in the Lord's goodness, which I think is uh, um, perhaps the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm intrigued by this because we see this so often in our in our society uh, appeals to authority, right? And we, of course, even more so, being part of a hierarchical church. Uh, we think that there are some legitimate times to appeal to authority, but there's so much of people posturing to be that authority and and convincing us that, oh, really, I'm the one you should listen to, and I'm going to tell you uh, the truth about the hierarchy one way or the other. Um, and so, really, you don't have to pay attention to the hierarchy. Just listen to me and my interpretation of the hierarchy, and you'll be fine. And, of course, this is stereotypical of or leading towards the the possibility of spiritual abuse. Yeah. Um, this is something that Pope Francis has. Uh, there's been several moments in his teaching where uh, he, he nails things down when it comes to spiritual abuse without actually directly talking about it. Um, but in his apostolic letter from a couple of years ago, when he announced the year of St. Joseph, he wrote uh, a letter, uh, Patris Corde. Uh, about St. Joseph. And in that letter, he talks about St. Joseph under the title of uh, Most Chaste Father, which is interesting because when you think about Joseph being chaste, it's usually Most Chaste Spouse. Mm-hmm. He used this, uses the title Most Chaste Father. And he said, what is this chastity of St. Joseph? And he said, the Pope defines chastity as freedom from the desire to possess the other. And then he says, God loves us with perfect chastity because he respects our freedom and allows us even to go astray. So chastity is freedom from the desire to possess the other. And I think what what Pope Francis is doing here, I think, is he's correcting, I think, tendencies, at least within the historical magisterium of trying to control, mm-hmm. but certainly tendencies within other, other leaders in the church, like, who, like you were saying, who want to set themselves up as authorities as a way for us to examine them. Are they acting this way in an attempt to possess and control others? Or are they trying to help people form their consciences? Which is something else the Pope gets at in Amoris Laetitia, where he says we need to be helping people form their consciences and not trying to replace people's consciences. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key thing there. Both the intention of, am I trying to possess and control? And then objectively, is this someone who's trying to just tell me what to do and replace my conscience? Or are they giving me revelation and information and inviting me to respond to it freely? So we know that spiritual abuse happens predominantly when there is a power imbalance. When one person, When one person has a real or perceived authority and the other person is meant to be a follower. But that's not... The, the, the presence of a power imbalance does not automatically point to spiritual abuse because the fact of the matter is there's a power imbalance every time we go into the confessional. Um, and not every time we go into the confessional is it spiritual abuse. And so as we're talking about 
and trying to define spiritual abuse, maybe draw a picture of what does a healthy interaction look like in the midst of that power imbalance? Yeah. Um, one of the main sources that I use for this article is a Father Fernandez, who's a priest at the Pontifical University down in Chile. And he, he has this quote I want to share. He says, he says that the, the, the disciple opens his or her conscience to a master who has an ecclesiastical support, so a church support. And in the face of sacred power, instinctive resistance gives way. Therefore, the kind, this kind of vulnerability is not seen as a deficiency of the disciple, but a necessary condition of discipleship. Right? Like, as you said, there's this inherent power imbalance, and it's not a bad power imbalance. If I'm going to someone, a spiritual director, I have to let my defenses down and let them speak into my conscience in a way that I would not let other people speak into. So the power imbalance is not a bad thing. I think, but I think the key thing is everyone needs to be aware of that power imbalance, most especially the person with the power in that relationship. I mean, this is, this is like Spider-Man ethics, right? With great power comes great (laughs) responsibility. And this is something in, you know, in the professional counseling world hammered in, in our ethics is you're in a position of power in your relationship within counseling. So it's your responsibility to make sure you are not harming the person in the room with you. So someone who is in ministry or as a pastor, as a spiritual director, they must first and foremost take on the responsibility of not harming, of actively not harming the person who they're working with. Um, and then I think also it, um, for the person who's being ministered to, an awareness of that imbalance is important um, to where they can let themselves be vulnerable, but in a way that respects their own dignity, mm-hmm. right? Like I, we, we probably all had this experience where we've, you know, encountered someone. Uh, this happened a lot in me at college where you encounter someone and over dinner, somehow they're sharing like all of their traumas and their whole life history. And you're like, this is too much. Like they're like opening themselves up in a way that you're like, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. Like there's something broken in this person that they are like just, you know, making themselves that vulnerable to someone they don't know and who they shouldn't trust me. They've known me for 30 minutes. Right. Um, so I think that vulnerability and the, the trust that's necessary for vulnerability um, must be built. Mm -hmm. And for me, as someone who's being ministered to um, as much as I'm able to in whatever brokenness I have coming into this situation, be mindful of like that type of trust is earned and must be earned over a process of time. Um, So it's not that the power imbalance is bad, but it's a recognition that that exists and that harm is possible within that relationship and being mindful of that. So I want to push a little bit more on this because one of the things you talk about is that the person who is uh, the who has the power in the situation uh, may not intend the harm and in fact might think that they are doing something for the the best good of someone else. So let's say that you're that person in the in the imbalanced power. You have the power um, as a parent perhaps uh, and you are wanting to bring out the be- what you see as the best result for that other person in the power imbalance. How do you make sure 
that you're meeting the criteria that you said earlier, that you're actually actually working for their good as a person and not just trying to impose your own control and and picture of what perfection should be on that person. Yeah. And I think that's where real internalization of that, of that understanding of chastity as freedom, even from the desire to control the other. So um, me and a ministry partner a month or so ago, we were doing formation um, at a parish out of state for a group of youth ministers and a core team. And one of the things we said to them was, your agenda in youth ministry needs to be to bring the person in front of you into, into not the knowledge of and life in God's love and desire for them, to experience God's love and desire for them. And if you have any other agenda, you've stopped doing ministry and now you're doing something else that probably isn't good. Even if that other agenda is itself good, even if that other agenda is to help this young person not make mistakes that could, you know, um, <laughs> really put obstacles in their life, right? To not drink, to not do drugs, um, you know, to not have a teenage pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. But if that becomes our agenda, now we're using the gospel for another agenda. Mm-hmm. So I think that all ministers need to have that, that really intentional examination of their own heart and their own intentions. Why am I working? Why am I making the choices I am in my work with this person? Is it so that they know and can live in and experience God's love and desire for them? Or is it for any other reason? And if it's for any other reason, that should make us pause. And I think it's important for us to recognize that even as parents, you know, we think of spiritual abuse as something that happens by the church, in the church, um, you know, the the bishops or the priests or the catechists. But we as parents, as we are passing the faith, we are the primary educators of our children. We have to be mindful that we are stewards of their lives. And it's not like they, they're our kids until they're 18 and then they get to be their own adults, that they are their own person from that very first moment and that we are stewarding that and we'll be held to account for it by God. Yeah. Like I said, in that letter to St. Joseph, Pope Francis wasn't talking about Joseph, the most chaste spouse. He was talking mm-hmm. about Joseph, the most chaste father, the father who is able to love his children without even the desire to possess or control them. Since the year of St. Joseph started, um, we've had a couple of different devotions here at the house. We've got a an icon of him hanging over the dinner table, and I find myself sitting very often on the, the St. Joseph side of Mass asking for his intercession because I know I fall short in so many ways. And so for my own family and for yours as well, I ask St. Joseph, most chaste father, pray for us. We've been talking today with Paul Faye. He is uh, the the co-founder of Where Peter Is uh, and blogs and podcasts over at PopeFrancisGeneration.com. The piece that we're talking about today is The Place Where You Stand is Holy Ground, Recognizing and Preventing Spiritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. I strongly encourage you to go and read that. There's more to this conversation right after the break as we delve into our role as parents. Don't go anywhere. There's much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, D.L. Today we're talking with Paul Fay. He's written a piece recently called The Place Where You Stand is Holy Ground, Recognizing and Preventing Spiritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. It is an essential read. It's a really a good, concise primer on the topic. It's very clear in the way that it's organized. And it brings to light a topic that I think we don't often really focus on. We think, you know, we're making disciples of our children. We're making disciples in the church of people who come into RCIA. We're discipling, we're telling the, uh, teaching the truth. And yet so often we do so in a way that is, um, manipulative or coercive, not because we're intending to be manipulative or coercive, but because those are the methods that we have learned by osmosis. It's what worked on us, and maybe we didn't experience that same trauma, and so we think that it's no big deal. It worked for us. Why wouldn't it work for my kids? Uh, And yet we're seeing just a massive uh, influx of or, or rise of those who say that they have no faith whatsoever. They're often called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, where when asked on census data, uh, what religion do you belong to? They, they check the box that says none. Uh, so there are people who have responded in, in a way uh, that, that reveals some pain and trauma that they've experienced from their religious upbringing. So I hear all the time parents saying, what do I need to do to get my children back into the church? I think part of it is recognizing and acknowledging what it was that potentially sent them away in the first place, unpacking that, and then doing whatever we can to, pre- to, to stem the tide and prevent that kind of, of trauma from being perpetuated onto the next generation and on down the line. Paul, again, thank you so much for being here to talk about this piece. Thank you. One of the things that you mentioned in the, uh, in the article that I don't know that you use some terminology that's uh, pretty inside baseball. And I want to break that out a little bit. And that's the terms uh, you talk about the potential for spiritual abuse when internal and external forums are conflated, are ignored, are mixed up. So what is internal forum? What is external forum? And how do we avoid that, that specific pitfall? Yeah. So, um, the external forum really is um, the objective law. Um, and the internal firm forum, as I understand it, which <laughs> I may misunderstand it, this is not, uh, this is pretty inside baseball, um, is really like the internal, um, like the internalization of that objective law, the understanding, the internal understanding of it, and then the like, living it out the decision making process of it so it's 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 the work of conscience not just the work of conscience but especially the work of conscience um in um internalizing and living out the moral law so an example is when i would teach rcia i was not a part of someone's internal forum mm-hmm. my job was to communicate and explain and present the church's teaching and like put it on a table in front of people and answer all their questions about it and offer it to them and say, go sit with this, wrestle with this. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so they would take that objective law and bring it into their internal form. Right. And if they would wrestle with it beyond what I was able to help them with, I could direct them to, 
a pastor or a spiritual director or someone who could, you know, walk with them in the internal forum to help them work that out. Mm -hmm. My job as a catechist was not um, to enter into that internal forum. Does that distinction help? It does. Uh, so there's also maybe an added step of of nuance that helps that your phrasing helps me understand something that I experienced before. When I worked for the church, uh, either at the diocesan level or at the parish level, um, we were often told not to mix internal and external forum. And what that meant for us is that the people who are responsible for evaluating my work and my um, my uh, performance at in my job were not allowed to be the ones who could hear my confession. Yeah. Lest the thing that they would hear in confession might get brought over into that external forum of making other judgments that that they had no business making. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that, um, and in the new catechetical directory that came out just a few years ago from Rome, there's a passage in there that I quote in my article that really... Um, puts a lot of gravity on catechists, and, and I would say on all ministers, um, to not confuse those two things. That as a catechist, to not pretend, or I mean, not even pretend, to inadvertently even step into someone's internal forum and think that, like, they need to, like, that you need to make them make a decision, or you need to enter in. No, 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 no. Your job is to present and explain, mm-hmm. right? To help them encounter the Lord, and let them work that out in their internal forum. John Paul II, um, Pope St. John Paul II, was quoted as saying, and I think he was quoting another document from the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council. He said that we don't uh, impose our views. We propose the truth and let the truth impose itself. That that we just kind of, and this is very different from the evangelical world that I grew up in, where the goal was to get someone to pray that prayer by the end of our little encounter so that they could go away and, 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 uh, and be safe because they, you know, they prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, even as we're thinking about this in terms of evangelization, you know, we've been talking about uh, priests and catechists and parent, but even as missionary disciple, we go out and we propose the truth and we may accompany someone by proposing the truth, but we leave it on the table and we don't force the hand and we we let the Holy Spirit do his job and we mind our own business. Absolutely. And I think that the, the language that Pope Francis uses is he criticizes proselytism mm-hmm. and d- distinguishes that from um, evangelization. And I think that's precisely uh, the definitions that he's using. The first is concerned with controlling the other person in some way, even for some good end that we have. And the second respects that person's freedom and desires simply to propose to them the truth and the goodness and the love of God. And then with, and there's a real sense of trust with it and humility with that, right? Like, um, what's, what's the line from Narnia I'm missing? Like, um, I'm probably gonna get it wrong, but it's like, Aslan's not a tame lion. Yeah. Right. Like, the truth and the goodness and the love of God are not tame things. Yeah. Of course we, he isn't safe, but he's good. Yeah. So we should not have this fear that like, we have to get a this formula right, or we have to make this person say this prayer or like change this behavior or somehow God's grace isn't working. No, 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 no. The Lord invites us in humility to just present and to, to like unleash his love and his goodness and his truth 
and trust that he will bring the fruit from it that he wants to bring from it. Mm-hmm. That's such a, uh, a difficult thing to be so invested in being willing to share our story. It's almost like we're letting our, our part of ourself go out into the world and we want to protect that part of ourself. Uh, and we want to be understood. And we, and we think that the only way to be understood is to have that person assent to the thing that we're saying, because obviously it's true. So obviously if they really understood it, they would, they would, they would do what I want. Yeah. It, it, it requires, I think a real sense of spiritual detachment. Mm-hmm. That my job is to sow the seeds. My job is to say the words the Lord wants me to, or to serve others and love others the way he wants me to. The fruit that comes from that is likely not my responsibility. And so to this end, I want to talk to the parents who have children who have left the church. I see so many parents who are uh, longing and desperate to find the right words that will bring their children back. Um, and my, my proposition here is to look to St. Monica who prayed and prayed and prayed and pleaded with, um, with Augustine. But the thing that made the difference is someone else was the one who brought Augustine back over the line, right? Monica wasn't the one who did it. Her prayers made all of the difference, but it was Ambrose who did the work because there was that sense of detachment there. And so pray for the child, but also pray for an Ambrose. Yeah. I, I think there's also, even in the way you framed that, where we want the right words that will bring the people we love back, as if conversion is simply an intellectual thing, mm-hmm. where like if, if, just they, if they just hear the right thing, they get the right answer or whatever, when I think the most important thing, you know, and... and my oldest isn't 10 yet, so I do not have adult children who've left. But I believe the most important thing is to love and to be willing to apologize for mm-hmm. the mistakes that we make as parents and being willing to hear our children out um, without getting defensive when they share their experiences of the church or of our own parenting. Um, there's in, in counseling, there's a principle in person-centered counseling um, that says that uh, there's a few other things, but it's primarily if you can listen, if you can have empathy, and if you can have unconditional positive regard for the person in front of you, um, that that creates an environment, a space where the person can heal in that space. Um, and your job as the counselor is simply to create that space. And I think that in ministry and in parenting and in all of our relationships, those are important. Listening, empathy, but this unconditional positive regard or this, I think you could call it unconditional acceptance, which isn't agreement, right? It, mm-hmm. it does not, not necessarily mean agreement, but it means unconditional acceptance of who this person is and what their experience has been and where they're at at this moment and accept them as they are and not put any conditions on that acceptance. They don't have to be better for you to love them and accept them. They don't have to stop doing whatever behavior they're doing that makes you uncomfortable for you to love and accept them. You can accept them as a human being with infinite value, as someone as someone you love, 
mm-hmm. um, without any without any provisos on that. And I, yeah, this is where it comes back to you know, Thomas Aquinas says that to love is to will the good of that other person, and to take take the emotional aspect out of it. What are those things that bring up an emotional rise in you or in them, and recognize that that is ancillary to to the act of love, right? It's real and it's valid and it's something that they're feeling and something that you're feeling and maybe something for a conversation, but it's not part of willing their good, right? What's what's eternally good for you? Realizing that I don't have to solve that problem today, right? I can love you and accept you without without accepting everything that you do or saying that what you're doing is right. Yeah, one of the one of the things in in the research. Um, it talked about cultures or environments that make spiritual abuse, you know, um, you know, more fertile ground for spiritual abuse. And one of the things is either explicitly or implicitly, what's communicated to people is that their acceptance and belonging in the community is dependent upon some sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's an incredible challenging thing, because I think if we look into our own hearts, our acceptance of others is often, uh, we often put provisos on that. Um, but we certainly do that in a lot of our, in a lot of our religious communities. There mm-hmm. are certain people who do not belong, at least in like, and we may not say that explicitly, but implicitly we, 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 we have that, right? We have those walls up. Um, but within our own families as well. And I think that's a real, it's a really challenging examination that we need, that we need to have. And I think ultimately going back to that, that quote from Paul, that we're to be ministers of reconciliation is to look at the situation as let me continue to grow spiritually and to grow in my relationship with God. And let me invite that other person into that. Uh, we're, we're not, we're, you know, even the, the, picture of the shepherd, right? The shepherd leads the sheep. He doesn't drive the sheep, right? Uh, and so that's that's the picture that we have in the image that's been given to us to emulate, is that we lead the way, we make the invitation, but most importantly, we follow the shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking with Paul Fay. He's got uh, a beautiful article called The Place Where You Stand is Holy Ground, Recognizing and Preventing Spiritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. We've got a link to it over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Uh, on Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. You can also find it by going to wherepeteris.com. If you want to hear more of Paul Fay, well, I've got a couple of uh, places. One, you can go to popefrancisgeneration.com. There he blogs and podcasts. Two, we have an extra segment each and every week available to all those who support the show through Patreon. We're going to continue this conversation over there, give you a couple extra questions. Go to outsidethewalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. T.L., thank you so much. If you missed any part of my conversation with Paul Fahey or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, um, there is that extra segment. You can click the Patreon link and find that. And then I really want to encourage you, uh, take the time. This is a, a difficult topic and it's a difficult 
piece to wrestle with because it means we have to look at it square in the face. But I encourage you to go over to wherepeteris.com, read through this this little treatise. It's not terribly long. Uh, And then take the time, reflect on it. Spend some time thinking about it like we talked about last week. Don't just react and have that be your only reaction, but spend some time with it praying and asking for God's grace to be in the middle of your own processing. And then come over to social media after you've had some time to process and maybe you have an experience or a thought that you want to share or explore. And that's what the social media platform is for, not just for for spitting out uh, reactions, but for having conversations with one another. So I invite you over uh, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking scripture to the the fathers and doctors of the church, to the catechism, to original language research, biblical commentaries, and so much more. Learn more at verbum.com. Our reading today uh, from Scripture is going to come from a responsorial psalm that uh, that came up this week, and it's Psalm 17. Lord, when your glory appears, my joy will be full. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Lord, when your glory appears, my joy will be full. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Lord, when your glory appears, my joy will be full. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Lord, when your glory appears, my joy will be full. That reading comes from a responsorial psalm out of Psalm 17. And I guess what I want to say about this today is simply this. We serve a merciful and a just God. And his mercy is for us and his justice is for us. And even his justice is for us, for our good. And so as we come across these situations where where people have been wounded deeply and we see the, the harm that has been done to, to those who are part of our community, we rest in the knowledge that God is just and we pray that his mercy would be with those who were harmed and that God would hear their cries and that honestly, that he would give us the wisdom and the, the courage and the, uh, the wherewithal to be an answer to those who are currently hurting, that we could be consolation or provide some consolation for those who have gone through such difficult uh, experiences. Our reading from church history comes from about this time of the year, uh, we're a couple of weeks past it now, but about this time of the year, every year in the Liturgy of the Hours, there is a reading from St. Augustine for pastors. 
And it is a, a very strong warning against being a bad shepherd. And it spread, it's not just what, you know, most of the time when you have a reading in the breviary, you get it for a day and then you move on and you're on a different reading the next day. But you get this sermon from St. Augustine over the course of about two weeks. And it's just kind of unrelenting. And our, our pastors read this every year as they pray the Liturgy of the Hours. And just as it applies to those in those positions of power as as shepherds, and of course, Augustine, as he was writing it, was writing it as a bishop. It also comes to any of us who are given charge or leadership uh, over others, even if that's just as parents over our children. And so uh, let's read this together, both with the idea of praying for those who have gone through spiritual abuse at the hands of uh, of church staff, priests, catechists, volunteer but also let us be mindful of our own responsibility that we have to those in our household. This specific translation, by the way, comes from a the, the works of Augustine, St. Augustine, translation for the 21st century. It's a, a series put together by New City Press. Uh, it's a fantastic translation. If you've had trouble reading the Church Fathers before, this is very accessible. And so I encourage you to, to take a look at that as well. Thus says the Lord God, O the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves alone, do not shepherds feed sheep? That is, shepherds don't feed themselves, but sheep. That's the first cause of complaint against these shepherds, that they do feed themselves and not the sheep. Who are the ones that feed themselves? Those about whom the apostle says, for all seek their own advantage, not that of Jesus Christ. You see, we whom the Lord has deigned, thanks to no merit of ours, to set in this high station, about which a very strict account indeed has to be rendered, have two things about us that must be clearly distinguished. One, that we are Christians. The other, that we are placed in charge. Being Christians is for our sake, being in charge is for yours. It is to our advantage that we are Christians, only to yours that we are in charge. And there are many people who reach God as Christians without being in charge of anything, and no doubt have all the easier a journey for traveling light and carrying less of a burden. But we bishops, apart from being Christians, as which we shall render God an account of our manner of life, are also in charge of you, and as such will render God an account of our stewardship. So since the sole reason people are put in charge is to consider the interests of those they are in charge of, and not at all to attend to their own advantage, but only that of those they are in service of. Anyone put in charge who just enjoys being the boss— and seeks his own honor, and looks to his own convenience, is feeding himself, not the sheep. These are the ones being God at. Listen. Listen like God's sheep, and observe how well God has ensured your safety. Whatever those in charge of you may be like, that is, whatever we bishops may be like, he that feeds Israel has ensured your security. 
surely if God doesn't desert his sheep, then not only will bad shepherds pay the penalty they deserve, but the sheep will also obtain what they have been promised. That reading comes uh, from, I believe, some Sermon 46 of the Old Testament. Uh, it's, this specific translation is from the works of St. Augustine, a translation for the 20th century, 21st century rather, from New City Press. There's a lot to unpack here, and, and of course, the, the whole sermon is along these same lines. There's a, a number of things that, that need to be balanced. Uh, they are pastors, leaders, whether that's a pastor or a catechist or a parent, we are given the church, the charge to speak the truth, but to do so in a way that glorifies the truth and doesn't threaten. We also are encouraged and charged with caring for the, those who are wounded. And so those of us who maybe you're just coming to the realization that spiritual abuse is a thing and maybe you haven't been able to put the words to it before. I want to encourage you that this is our time to, with the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as missionary disciples, to go out like Christ did, to seek and save the lost. Not by our own effort, not by, oh, I'm going to swoop in and save you, but by sitting and accompanying and hearing the stories of those who have been wounded and not just reacting to their stories and seeing someone who's left the church and maybe feeling, oh, what a shame that we we lost that person or, or wagging our finger at them, but to sit with them and to listen to their story and to discern what was it that that drew that person away from the church, that made them feel it necessary to find uh, some sense of security or freedom outside. Because most likely, at least from the, the number of people that I've talked to, it's come from a deep place of wounding and of disillusionment and not from a place of, um, of vitriol or of uh, apostasy in some way. So I want to encourage those of us who are in the church to have mercy for those who have felt it necessary to leave and not to invite them back in in the sense of just throwing out invitations, but going out to them and sitting with them and walking with them and not abandoning them just as Christ does not abandon us and does not abandon them. Uh, Lord God, give us the grace and the strength to do that in St. Joseph. Most chaste Father, pray for us. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and consider joining their numbers. Come join the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle is at OutsideTheWalls. I would love to hear your thoughts and what you think. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.